0: Thank you for listening to the Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons podcast. Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. Q is about conversation. If we're really concerned about ending poverty, we've got to be more concerned about creating justice. Our cultural products as Christians need to both defy and resonate with the culture. And God's doing amazing things. His church is expanding. His church is growing.
1: It's not what's the purpose of my life. It's what is the purpose that's been assigned. Stay
0: curious. Stay curious. Think
2: well, advance good. This is Q.
1: Colorblindness does not acknowledge the image of God in diverse people groups. Colorblindness actually encourages us to do surface level diversity and be passive in reconciliation.
0: Welcome to Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. That was David Bailey, who will hear two talks from today. I'm Paul Perot. Gabe will join us later in the show. That clip you heard from David was from a talk this past spring at Q2018. It was also a talk that we urged you to use as part of a Q dinner a few weeks ago. Q dinners are an opportunity for you to host people in your home, share a meal, watch a Q talk, and then have a frank, honest, and gracious discussion around the topic. Now, when we urged you to be part of a Q dinner the week of February 18, over 1,000 people took up the challenge and hosted a Q Dinner in their home around the topic of implicit racial bias. Now, maybe you're saying to yourself, good for them, I could never do that. Well, we're sure you'd agree that such discussions, although challenging, are necessary. And in our first talk from David Bailey today, he has a biblical exhortation to not shrink back from such a challenge, especially when you see the need is there and you can do something about it. Let's listen in.
1: I want to give you all a pastoral uh, message for the time because there's a lot of influencers in this room. And, you know, if you're watching online, you're um, an influencer that cares about culture. And one of the things when you're a leader that's an influencer um, in uh, Christian evangelical culture, you get a lot of sermons about influence. You get a lot of sermons about stewardship, but you don't get a lot of sermons about what to do with power and privilege. And there's a reason why and that we don't have time to uh, explore, but I just want to say two things. One thing I want to say is, is that uh, it's really important that you uh, uh, don't, when, when Christians don't have conversations about power and privilege, then we allow non-Christians to define all the terms in the conversation. The second thing I want to say is that when you only allow prophets to talk about power and privilege, what happens is that people oftentimes get paralyzed with shame and guilt. So I want to give you a pastoral message about power and privilege. And there's no better place to go than the book of Esther esther 's a, a book that is uh, talking about what does it look like to use your power and privilege for the sake of others for the sake of the kingdom of god now here 's the thing that 's really interesting about Esther the name of God is never mentioned the name of God is never mentioned. Now, I think the reason why is because God uh, wants to teach us how to use Power and privilege as the people of God, in the secular spaces. So I want to just read to you Esther four twelve through fourteen. It says, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said, and then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any. King's palace, you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In Tim Keller's uh, book, Counterfeit Gods, he uh, makes this point that we are here in this very moment for three reasons. Uh, One reason is because of our chemistry, how we were made. The second reason is our uh, environment, our sociology, like what kind of environment did we grow up? And the third reason is a personal choice that we've made. And what he points out is that two-thirds of those reasons have nothing to do with us. Two-thirds of those decisions were choices that were made uh, uh, for us, and we had to deal with those things. And so if you actually go through your life and you think about the stuff that's going on in, in, in your life and kind of where you are in this moment, you got to realize that two-thirds of those decisions uh, um, had nothing to do with you. I want to say, brothers and sisters, there's something liberating when you realize that you are where you are because of the grace of God. There is something liberating uh, when you understand that it is uh, um, not you that pulled yourself up by your bootstrap, but you are here because of the grace of God. And if you believe that you um, worked your way to get yourself in the place that you're in, then you have to keep yourself, you have to work to keep yourself in the position that you're in. But if it's on God, then it puts you in a position where you can actually be used from God. You don't have to be threatened by the things that might change in your life. Um, Our dear sister Esther was in a situation where uh, she was born as an orphan. She didn't have any choices in that area. And then she also was born where she was, uh, the Bible says she was really beautiful and she had a good form. She had a nice chemistry. And... Her, she was being raised by her uncle Mordecai, and Mordecai was a wise man that was observant, and he heard about a a beauty contest that was similar to the very first um, Bachelor reality TV show, where she was uh, uh, put into this position um, that she was in this contest, and the winner of this contest would become the queen. Now she had one night as a beautiful woman, where she had to spend a night with the king and let's say she wasn't probably playing board games. So she was presented with a choice and I think this dear sister was a me too story. Now however what happened, how things happened, how she got in that position, she became the queen and then Mordecai decides to, um, he, he hears that there is a plot to kill and oppress his people. And what Mordecai does is he engages in protests. Mordecai gets as close as he can possibly get to the king's gate, and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and begins to protest. Now, this is a thing that if you don't understand the context of this text, that you really won't understand how big of a deal this is. You don't complain in the king's kingdom about what's going on in the king's kingdom. But what Mordecai decided to do was to get as close as he possibly could do so that he could get the attention of the person and the people that's in both a powerful and privileged position in the palace. Guys, I want to tell you all that it's important that we pay attention to the voice of the protesters. Because we have a response that's oftentimes similar like Esther, that her first response was to silence the protesters. But we can't silence the protesters because God has a message that he wants to give us. We need to pay attention to what it is. And what you see here, it says, when, when, when Esther tried to silence the protesters, it said, then they told Mordecai what Esther had to say. and, privilege. and she wanted to silence the voice of the protester, but she had a Mordecai in her life that was able to get through the nonsense and help her to understand what her destiny is. Why did God put her in this place? Now, here's the thing I want to um, help you to understand is that you need a Mordecai in your life to help you to understand why did God put you in the place that he put you in. That Mordecai needs to be a person that, if you're a wealthy person or a person that has economic options, it needs to be a poor brother and sister. If you are a person that um, uh, has a lot of opportunity to exercise um, power and authority and influence, whether you have access economically or, ex- or access to influence people um, and, and authority in people's lives, you need somebody who is on. The margins to be able to speak into your life to help you to understand what reality really is, and if you're a person that is a person that is under the um, uh, um, uh, cultural influence of the majority culture, whether you're from a gender or it's from a racial or ethnic category, you need somebody from the margins to kind of help you to understand what reality is. Mordecai told her what the truth is. And then he said this. He says, um, go, uh, uh, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai Go gather all the Jews to find in Susa and hold fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink from these three days, night or day. And I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, if I perish, I will perish. And Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to do. As we get Mordecais in our life, we will then get a chance to hear what it is that God is clearly saying. And when you're a person of uh, uh, power and privilege, what happens in your life is you get a... You oftentimes don't get a chance to deal with as much suffering because power and privilege allows you to prevent yourself from suffering in the ways that other folks do. And what's key to suffering is that suffering is what God uses to help bring transformation. The other thing that helps to bring transformation is through prayer. Prayer. And so what I want to encourage you all to do is to do some things in your life that will require you to have to fast and to pray. And don't only do the things in your life that only requires you to um, uh, 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 do the things that you have the power to obtain. Too often when we are people of influence and power and privilege, we, uh, we do the things that we go from good to great, and we might have a big, hairy, audacious goal that we can maybe get in our own strength, but we actually need to go from good to God and do some things that is going to require God to work and to show up. And if we perish, then we perish. You've heard a lot of stuff. You, you, you see a lot of what's going on, and you might even get overwhelmed and say, like, what is it that I can do within my own strength? But maybe what you need to ask is the question, what is it that I can do in God's strength?
0: And that again was David Bailey here on Q Ideas with Gabe Lyons. That talk entitled, For Such a Time as This, you can find that on our website at qideas.org. Just do a search for David Bailey, you'll find the talk again entitled, For Such a Time as This. Now, hopefully you heard in that talk, not only a call to do something for God, but also a knowledge that God will empower you in that calling. Gabe Lyons joins us now. And, Gabe, I think that first talk leads us nicely into another talk today from David Bailey that was used as part of the Q Dinners a few weeks ago that we mentioned.
2: I think when you listen to it, not only are you going to find it refreshing and warm and inviting, but you're also going to consider, maybe I should host dinner around this topic. And it's not too late to do that. You can go to QDinners.com. If you're listening now do it now. It's, it's actually rather simple. And this actual talk begins to kick off a dinner conversation around a few questions that we provide for you that I think your friends would find so refreshing because there's just not a lot of places where we can talk about this kind of stuff anymore. And so David Bailey, I just want you to know a little bit about him. He's an amazing man. He's part of our board uh, for our organization, but he founded something called Erebon, and is this ministry that equips churches and nonprofits with the tools and resources to really shepherd their community in understanding diversity along racial, ethnic, and class divisions toward living out a practice that really embodies what they learned. And and I've seen him walk me through that. He's walked several friends of mine through this, several churches, and he's the kind of just gentle soul that can come in, understands the history of this really tense topic for some churches or some places, and, and he can walk people through understanding God's call to all of us. Uh, to come together and to to work together. He's done incredible work and lives in Richmond where he has led something called the Urban Doxology Project. He loves music. His wife's an amazing artist. So I'm gonna stop now. I just want you to listen to David deliver this wonderful nine-minute talk on implicit racial bias.
1: So I believe that the church should live and lead by example in the areas of diversity and reconciliation. Now, God has made the church a reconciling community. That's what he created the church to be. But why is it that the church is better known as a segregated community than a reconciling community? It is our reconciliation for one another that gives credibility to the reconciliation between God and humanity through Jesus Christ. Now, there aren't a lot of people in this room that would disagree with that statement. But again, we're known more as a segregated community than a reconciled community. So I was kind of given the task of the question, to answer the question, are we or do we have a problem with racism in America? So I thought I'd just pray about it, ask God. Yes. Okay. <laughs> 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 the problem isn't the civil rights understanding of racism, but the post-civil rights methodology of colorblindness. So this idea of colorblindness is that, you know, I don't see color. I just see grayish humanoids. <laughs> it's one of those things that has good intentions, but it's very misguided. It comes from Dr. King's idea that one day that his children, he had a dream that children would not be judged by the color of the skin, but the content of their character. But considering the fact that we've had over 400 years of, of, of racism and, 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 and systemic injustice, we got to realize that colorblindness is not the way to handle our history. Colorblindness is a problem for two main reasons. One reason is the fact that colorblindness does not acknowledge the image of God in diverse people groups. The second thing is that color blindness actually encourages us to do surface-level diversity and be passive in reconciliation. But again, God's called the church to be a what? Now, I learned how to preach in a black church, and so, you know, you got to talk back, right? <laughs> right? Thank you, brother. Got one. All right, so so what do we do? How do we become a reconciled community? It takes intentionality, vulnerability, and confession. So here is my community in Richmond, Virginia. You'll have all kinds of people. You have uh, people of different races, ethnicities. You have people who are millionaires in this picture, and you have people who are homeless people in this picture. You have some uh, for foreign people, some Baptists, some Lutheran, some Charismatics, and people who are suspicious of Charismatics. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you something. It takes intentionality to get this kind of diversity. This type of thing just doesn't happen on its own because we're all in our world doing what we do and it makes sense to us. Now, here's one of the things that we thought. About seven years ago, when we started this this community, we thought that if we just got a diverse group of people together and just hope for the best, that we could be a truly multicultural community. But even with our good intentions, our good intentions aren't good enough. The thing that is challenging that we met was that we all have some level of implicit racial bias. Very few of us are Jim Crow racist. But we all have this idea that in our cultural understanding, there are some things that we think are just normal. But then you add the fact that we've had over 400 years of uh, systemic racism, and then for 30 years, we practiced this like colorblindness and thought that it would just be okay, so then all racial biases would be gone. But racial biases are the type of things that when you have an association with something that might be associated with a person, or a place, a thing, or an idea that might be associated with something racial, there are these automatic unconscious things that come up that make you react a certain kind of way. So let me give you an example. Gabe Lyons is over six foot tall. I'm pretty sure that Gabe Lyons has never been referred to as a scary white man, a big scary white man. But the term big scary black man is something that sounds normal to our ears. So then both Gabe and I are two mild-mannered type of guys. But if we were supposedly um, expressing type of anger, then the perception of an angry black man is different than the perception of an angry white man. So implicit racial biases, they influence our friendships, our networks. How do we fund things? Who do we think is qualified for leadership? And also, it affects all types of important decision-making processes. So how do we overcome implicit racial bias? We have to have safe spaces to be vulnerable and discern our implicit racial biases. About three to four years until the birth of our community, we were on a staff retreat, and one of the African-American women who was on the staff, she said, hey, I am hungry for somebody to know me as a woman of color. I'm angry that we talk about racial reconciliation, yet we're not doing anything about it. And I'm just tired of having a code switch for just to make white people feel comfortable. So her vulnerability actually encouraged me to say, you know what, I'm a little hurt too by the cultural insensitivities from our community. And the, the co-pastor, another African-American man, he he said, you know, I'm really tired that I have to assimilate it to white cultural norms and I just can't be respected as a pastor. So here we were at a crossroads. We had to make a decision. Were we going to create a safe space of belonging for people to bear one another's burdens across racial and ethnic identity? Or were we going to make the dominant culture feel comfortable? And so we grew a lot as a community. And we, yes, did some education about the issues of race, but we really learned how to be a vulnerable community and a confessing community. So I'm just going to tell you a little bit of how things happened when Ferguson and Eric Garner choking incident came up. That was a very hard time for our community. It was a hard time for me personally. It was a hard time for those who were uh, in this particular space, really caring and living and working out, uh, reconciliation. We decided to have a prayer service. And in our prayer service, we had a time of open prayer and lamenting about what was going on. And something that we learned as a community is that, A Christian community cannot be a reconciling community if it's not a confessing community. And so in this prayer, there was a 70-year-old white man that's a retired engineer. He got up, he said, God, before I came to be a part of this community, I didn't know anything about race, relations, and white privilege. I was ignorant. God, please forgive my ignorance. Please forgive the the ignorance of my white brothers and sisters, because we just don't know. Then there was a white seminarian woman who was married to a Mexican man, and she said, you know what, as a white woman, I would never know what it's like to be an African-American or a person of color here in America, but what I can say is that I know what it's like to be married to an undocumented Mexican man. And every single time I hear somebody says, I wish those dirty Mexicans would go back home, it's like a knife being thrusted in my stomach and twisted. And she's praying this and crying and wailing. And then it was this youth pastor's wife, an African-American woman that said, you know, I'm a new mother to a beautiful baby boy, African-American baby boy, and my greatest fear is that I will lose my son to implicit racial bias. That day we did not solve the problem of race, but we learned what it meant to be a reconciling community. We got a chance to practice what it meant to be a reconciling community. So Q, I just want to leave you one question. When you go back home, will you lead your community to be a reconciling community or a passive community? Because a reconciling community is what the hope of the world is for today. Thank you very much.
2: Well, I hope you enjoyed this talk, and I, I'm sure you can imagine now the chatter that would erupt over dinner around these topics, these conversations, even people acknowledging where in their own life they've had some of those similar experiences, where they've, they've actually had some racial bias towards somebody, and until now, maybe they didn't realize that's what it was, but I think just by talking about it, by getting this out in the open, that's part of how we heal. It's part of how we bring truth into the light, and it allows us to, to deal with it versus just keeping it kind of hidden or, or stuffed away, and so... I hope you'll continue to engage these conversations. I know on qideas.org, you can see many more talks we've done around this topic of race. Most recently, we had a wonderful talk by Duke Kwan this last year on the topic of reparations. And it was the idea of how do we repair the sins of the past where structures have been impacted by racism. And so I hope you'll consider doing that. But also think about joining us this year at our Q conference. It's not too late. We have a few seats remaining, and we're going to be sold out, 2,000 people Filling Music City Center, downtown Nashville, round tables, sitting with eight people around your table, hearing talks just like you just heard, being challenged to talk about those with your group, and then having incredible experiences where you go out into the city of Nashville and you enjoy wonderful music, you enjoy great meals, you enjoy film and entertainment and Broadway shows, and and you get to actually experience culture with your friends while you're also learning about how to think well about the year ahead and the difficult topics and conversations that are going to continue to emerge for you, your friends, your colleagues, those that you go to church with, those that you're called to lead. And so learn more and join us, qideas.org slash 2019. You can go there, you can see all the topics, you can see all the information about it. But because you listen to this podcast, we know you care about these kinds of conversations. It's not always easy to come to the event, but we want you to to consider making the effort. The prices are at a rate that we think is completely reasonable for three days of engaging and finding other leaders who think about these kinds of issues, but maybe don't always have a place to explore how they're going to think and talk and interact and train and engage and equip the people around them to really understand how to sensitively, but with a posture of courage, engage culture. And so we hope you'll join us, qideas.org slash 2019.